What's up, everyone, and welcome to Through the Veil, episode number 32, with my friend Kave Kavusi. It's a really beautiful episode. We touch on a wide variety of topics, and this is one that, you know, may be challenging for some people. We talk about vaccination, we talk about just about everything that could challenge people's beliefs and inner systems, which I find very important. You have to always seek disconfirming evidence to your own beliefs. So it's a really, really beautiful conversation. We get super deep, super quick, and I hope you enjoy it. If you do, of course, sharing it out with a friend is the best way to support the podcast. And also another way to support the podcast is I finally have a new product out. And this new product is a grid a crystal grid for Archangel Metatron. And this is a beautiful practice I have had in my life for quite a while, which is having a intentional ceremonial altar setup. And having this altar is sort of a way for me to pay homage to an archetype or to the divine. And this is a really easy way for you to access that at home easily. So you'll be able to take your own archangel set and kind of put it into your own practice at home. So if that's something that interests you, you can check it out. I will put a link in the notes here for you to get it purchased and go grab yourself a kit. Um, and you can also, of course, book one-on-one coaching with me. It's something I always have available and always am excited to do. So if that's something that speaks to you, please follow the links in the show notes and head on over to my website, which is www.throughtheveil.co. Well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump right into the episode. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Kave. I'm glad to have you here. If you want to lead with just a little uh, brief introduction of yourself, obviously you've been on before, so people may have heard that episode previously, but tell people a little bit about yourself before we dig right in. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be back and recognizing like the importance of continuity and setting up rapport. And I know through the podcast world, that can be different because we're having a conversation and then the next one may never be, or it can be a year later or years later. And this one seems to be like we had one at the start of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And now like for the U S it seems to be on the other side of it. While I'm in Canada right now, still in the ER walking among people who are still wearing masks where the rest of the world we see through media is like back to dancing with each other and eating in restaurants again. So um, yeah, I'm, it's been 15 months for me now in the ER working COVID and most healthcare workers haven't had time off. So I'm just myself coming off of a one month self-imposed break from the hospital, because if no one was going to give like get offer us a break, what am I waiting for to take one for myself? And I was already feeling the exhaustion and um, I'm glad that I took the time off, but it made space for me to re- realize how many other aspects of my social life and my responsibilities and other endeavors or like work related things uh, were really put on the back burner. And so I'm catching back up right now. Mm. Yeah. It's a, I can only imagine and, and think about how just that pressure 
of having people's life literally in your hands frequently. And then all of a sudden you have this additional X factor of like, oh yeah, now you're going to basically work all the fucking time, have no breaks whatsoever. And that you don't know when that's going to stop. It's uh, exhausting just to experience, I imagine. Mm -hmm. I was uh, talking, my, my girlfriend just did her CPR class yesterday and she was realizing that when they were practicing resuscitating the the dummy and she's learning this she's saying i'm just taking i'm just realizing now the profundity of how if i'm ever to show up in the er in my greatest time of need i'm so dependent on what the state of that person is who's coming to take care of me are they exhausted are they burnt out did they just have a fight with their child and is that ruminating in their mind right now and so often is the case that the social obligations or expectations or things that have happened circumstantially do invade with us. But I think when you're in the role of taking care of someone else, there's this very strong coping mechanism, defense mechanism that we have that overrides us even more to show up for the individual yep. at the expense of ourselves. And I don't think that many healthcare providers are very well equipped to navigate a lot of the the things that are happening with themselves. So they'll double down on work. They'll show up for others more and it may take a very serious life moment for them to have a, a realization and a pause is either imposed or they invite themselves into it to really realize what weight they've been carrying, including yeah. myself. Yeah. It's really interesting. Cause I mean, it's an old trope of even to use an example from outside the medical field, like the psychologist who's an alcoholic or you know, the doctor that's sick. And there can be this real externalization where people become so focused on the helping other that they neglect to take care of themselves. And then in so they actually dishonor the helping of the other because they're not at their fullest capacity, certainly. Right. And we don't even have to look like to vocations. If you think about the mother, the mother, the moment the child comes to the world, that child is the primary responsibility and mom is second. She always remains second. And one of the most important reminders that I, I say, but it probably, I mean, I, I wouldn't know because there's probably a biological intelligence that overrides anything that we can invite to. The mother will still always prioritize her child. Right. I, I would say like 98% of the time. And yes, the child gets a, a more exhausted mother, a mother who can be progressively more depleted. Then when you stack on social expectations of what a mother should be, you put this extra weight of her not listening or being able to be in tune with what her biological necessities, uh, the biological necessities of the child that are speaking to her and she already knows innately are getting a little intertwined and potentially confused. And that is more debilitating too. Yeah, well, I think it, it even goes to the, just the concept of like meeting people where they're at, because when we talk about, you know, whether it's a doctor in the ER or a mother dealing with her child, you're right. You're not going to, there's nothing you can say that's going to be like, Hey, self-care needs to be your priority. They're yeah. going to go, mm -hmm, yeah, cool story. No, fuck you. But to meet them where they're at and just provide some basic tools of a couple of things you could do. Like if you take 10 minutes for yourself today, I know you feel like you don't have it but just 10 minutes, mm -hmm. then you can at least give them that crack in the uh, crack in the door and they can start to see into that next room and go, oh, wow, when I take that 10 minutes for myself, I'm so much more effective. Like, it's not just that I feel better, but it's that I'm more effective. 
And in that, they get the opportunity to start to go, okay, what other things have I been telling myself that are a story about how I can be or not be? Yeah, well said, man. That makes me think of, as opposed to like, maybe it's the uh, that part of my mind and many men's minds that we go to the fixing, the solution. What you're inviting in is more of the holding, which is almost like a buffer for them to at least create some space between where the automatisms of the experience are there, where they feel is an obligation or necessity for them to be. Creating that space allows them to digest and reflect and maybe reorient a little bit more for them to maybe have some of the signals for them to acknowledge their needs a little bit. And if they are met with some expectation from us that something needs to be fixed, that may hinder their capacity to see that in the first place. And um, I can imagine that many, I don't want to go gender, but I feel like many women are at the receiving end of a man who tries to fix in some way. And even in our best attempts to not have that be the case, we unconsciously or consciously uh, impose this this thing that says, hey, the direction that you are deviated from it this way because I see better for you. Mm-hmm. But it may not be the case that that's what their needs are. And so the holding is an opportunity for them to see for themselves. Absolutely. And it's something I've really been bringing very intentionally into my coaching practice because men or women the important thing is that they generate the solution. So I can ask gentle questions and like you said, invite them into deeper awareness. But if I give them an answer, if I give you an answer of what you should do, there's no responsibility. There's no ownership of the answer. If you fail, it's because Alex gave you a bad solution. And if you succeed, it isn't your victory. It's my victory, Mm. which when we're trying to empower people to live their own fully embodied life, what we want to do is like give them the tool to start to realize like you can do this for yourself. Now it's not good business practice on my end because it means people are less dependent on me, but ethically it's the move because you want people to have the ownership of the process so that they go, okay, I know I need to take a practice for self. And I can invite them into the awareness of like, you need to do something. You're invited to do something for yourself. You choose what it is. Mm -hmm. If it's two minutes in the morning where you sit with your coffee and read the newspaper. Mm -hmm. Imagine a coach had like these monthly surveys that they'd sent to their clients that said, how codependent do you still feel on me? Yeah, exactly. How much do you need me? Because this score should be going down. And I think if a coach thought about that, doing that, I would be curious to know what would come up for them because they may feel hesitant to bring the person to awareness by naming, hey, you're actually dependent on me and we need this cycle to go for us to maintain that rapport. And I wonder how the narrative could change where it's not a it's not a codependence or even if the person perceives codependence you can reorient what the why is at the back for them to establish that long-term relationship and it ultimately ends up being more re-empowered because even what you said was trying to embody trying to embody is a putting effort forward for embodiment where embodiment happens usually in them emulating what they see and feel through you and i wonder how the trying part and the this may be too meta, like as we go down there and decorticating, but I feel like that th- this is ultimately what we let people step back into. Like, I think you're making space again for them to step back into their power, right. but like, you're not 
you're not actually creating the space. The space is in front of them. The arena has always been available to them and they're just reorienting again. Exactly. Yeah. It's, I don't, I'm not interested in having 700 devotees. I'm interested in having 700 self-powered nodes of light who have generated that light from within themselves. And it's the challenge for me, but the frame that I give myself, and I see this in a lot of coaches and, you know, therapists, and there's other professions where this is prevalent as well, even the medical system. And there can be this, I don't know what you'd call it, like addiction to the dependence that the person feels and wanting to give them the answers. And I think it comes from a, you know, a genuine nurturing urge, which is, oh, well, Kaveh, I know what's wrong right now. So let me just fix it for you. It's like that overbearing mother archetype, um, mm -hmm. the devouring mother. And the way I frame it in my head is it's a blue ocean strategy. There are infinite games in which you will play throughout your life. And it is always going to be valuable for you to have someone with a measured and carefully considered perspective to check in with. Mm -hmm. And that could just be a friend. It doesn't need to be a fucking coach that you're paying. If you have a friend who's that good at holding space and won't project their own opinions, beliefs, and things they think you should do, then that is a beautiful thing to have as well. Um, for a lot of people, they don't have that in their life. And so I may co-create with you a solution to your current problem. And then you are going to enter into a new game, whatever that may be. Let's take the example of a job. I have a client recently who moved from, you know, one job that he really didn't like to a new job that he's super fucking excited about. Well, that new job is, he's gotten the new job. Like he got it. It's awesome. Now you could look at it one way. It's like, all right, cycle complete. That's all he needed, but he's entering into a new arena in which he's going to have new games he's playing. And so for me, it's that frame of, I only want people to work with me as long as they're getting value. And I want to empower them to generate their own solutions. They don't need to rely on me for every little thing. And I can also understand that as they enter into new areas of their life, it will still be a value for them to have a measured perspective to bounce things off of even just at a basic level to go like, here's what I'm thinking. Does this make sense? And I go, I don't think you fully thought through that yet. What about this? Like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I'm curious about the, the metrics of what someone defines as value, because there's one thing that someone may initially come to speak with you as the, the some type form of guidance, or if they come to me, in the ER, I recognize like doctors are very often like the caregiver archetype that we are, we, we satiate them with our words because the caregiver was able to, to support them. And in the same light, many coaches end up finding themselves in the role of these caregivers that uh, they carry that responsibility of someone almost not wanting to be told what to do, but to be held in their doing, in their living, in their actions. And I'm curious how, because uh, if we were to say, you know what, I, I want to like have a, like a end date where you have come in, you, uh, we have had our interactions, but your metrics of how you define value, I'd almost be curious to ask every client what that could be, because sometimes it can be like them, they're scanning for what is in it for me. Like when someone's reading a book to you, you're hearing it and you're almost processing it against all the information that you understand mm -hmm. and that you can perceive. And then symbolically, like if someone says something that doesn't fit the narratives or mm -hmm. what your, 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 your points of reference are, you, you might notice something stands out more. 
Okay. And that's more for scanning of logic, understanding, or where you were triggered by. Yeah. And in the same light with, with the, with the coaching, I'm curious, like if this person feels like this person's no longer serving me anymore, is this, was this a novelty thing that was coming up that like, because it's new and they're showing me new things, or is it because I feel lighter and it's things that transpire three to five days down from when I had that next conversation that I truly digest into something else. And I feel like a lot of the value that a lot of people will define will be truly undefinable metrics. Yeah, absolutely. And psychologically, the concept you're talking about just slightly before that is it's called a frame clash. It's where two frames, two windows through which you're viewing the world clash up against each other. And that's what causes that phenomena of you feeling like something is shiny or irritating often is the way it'll manifest. Someone says something, you're like, I'm fucking irritated by that. It's like, well, that's because your view of the world doesn't line up neatly with that view of the world. So those are always, you know, for the people listening, those are potent uh, avenues for investigation because when something like that happens, that's a chance to go, okay, I have a way of viewing things. Now this other way is challenging that. It's a good time to reanalyze. Uh, to your question at the end, I mean, I think it's people come to coaches for various different reasons. Sometimes it is a specific thing, like I need to work on my alcoholism. Great. And in those cases, the metric is, did the behavior you wanted to end or did the habit you wanted to bring in, did it get accomplished? Um, and a lot of people come in a little more open-ended. And this is where I really encourage, um, you know, in my ceremonial work with mushrooms, the thing I tell people all the time is, I don't want to see you, you know, four ceremonies, four months in a row. I want to see you twice a year, or once a year, mm -hmm. or once every other year. But the, the question for each person to ask themselves is, is my life getting better? Are things improving? Mm -hmm. Are things progressing in the direction I would like them to progress? Do I feel generally more aware? Now, this is not to be confused with the fact that, you know, I just wrote an article about this, but there are going to be various different points in your life where as all of these old parts of yourself are dying or passing away, you will have an extreme pain or an extreme, you know, it feels like everything in your life is on fire and nothing's working because you're shedding layers. Um, so I just like to point that out because sometimes people start coaching and, you know, two sessions deep, it's like everything is falling apart, falling apart. Um, but it's just that process of realizing like, okay, these 10 things were never for you. And you were lying to yourself that you were, they were for you. And so now it feels like they're falling apart because now you're aware, like now, you know, that that boss you had is a fucking dick and just like shits on you every day so now you have awareness so now it hurts more right which should be the stimulus for you to then move into the next phase to choose the next thing which back to what you're experiencing in the er right now it's like that's some of that stimulus where you're like okay i've come to some new realizations about what may or may not be a priority for me and so whether the shift just happens mentally or it happens with a shift of scenery professionally a shift will have to happen and mm -hmm. it's arriving at that shift and being sure that that's what you're aiming at that's the important metric for someone to reflect on it's like are you progressing towards that shift right 
That's that's great, and I, I think it for to bring the example of the the guy who tolerated the the boss that was not in integrity with him. There's tolerance that we're always weighing against what is in it for us to continue to tolerate. And in ER right now, there's a certain tolerance that I have because it me it meets the needs and demands of the time, the schedule that I want to have, the finances that I'd like to have right now to have me sustainable. Of course, we'd like to have more or greater uh, abundance, but it also, it demands this, this strain on myself that I'm sure many people, if you tap into the feeling of, it's one thing to acknowledge, I hate how the boss is mm. like speaking to me. It's another one to feel into what it is. When we reconnect with that feeling thing, that's where we can't override the mind for a moment. And that feeling can become really debilitating and actually bring us more to reconsider and take action on that because even as i'm talking about this right now i'm thinking these night shifts that i have coming up next week two of them already so debilitating on the body and it takes another day or two for me to catch back up the tolerance is not something that i feel is in my greatest benefit but i wanted to like you had brought up this beautiful concept with the frame uh frames clashing and i i think this is it's big because it can be ideologically but it can also be with just an individual because if you have an impression of a person and this person has been a certain way, and I'm speaking about myself because that's my best point of reference. I, I for listeners who don't know, I'm, I, I'm a Western trained, call it Western. I'm trained in North America for medicine and I practice emergency medicine. So I have an allopathic training for the dominant, medicine that is prevalent in North America and many areas of the world. Um, I have, uh, I had a tumor in my neck when I was 20 and it really reoriented the importance of the finiteness of life and how life can be appreciated most. And it's almost forced upon us when we feel that life is going to be taken away. And so that put me on a path of greater curiosity for like the inner workings of how human beings interact, how we are, how I am internally and uh, it brought more of the spiritual component to uh, the Western medicine. And I feel like as a physician, when I show up in the hospital, I show up with this, like as, as a response to the world and my life experience, this curiosity of the human that extends just outside of just patient and doctor interaction. And I feel like that has really paid dividends for myself for having a qualitative experience that is much more in depth for patients in all variations from if they're there for a, a silly stub toe or the most important stub toe mm -hmm. or they're near death. And um, I also recognize how this representation of who I am extended to many of my social circles right now. And what I have discussed with Alex uh, prior to this was um, I had been on the fence about uh, the vaccine. Mm -hmm for a while. And um, I'm not sure if you're okay with us going this direction. No, when, we're talking about, when we're talking about the frames of uh, perception, um, my expression to much, many of the communities that I'm in for my reluctance and openness to wanting to stay open to questions, which is like the fundamentals of science. And seeing some of the physicians that normally were notably asking great questions, suddenly not allowed to ask them anymore. Right. I created more of a buffer between getting a, the vaccine right when I had it available for another six to seven months mm -hmm. because I wanted to see objectively 
what is like, because there was a lot of fears coming in with the stories that were going around. Yeah. And in that reluctance, I thought this is very important for me to like spend more time being objectively as objective as possible while recognizing these subjective concerns that people are expressing. And I didn't see like what I saw in the hospital, in addition to more data coming out, uh, eventually led me to myself getting the vaccine just uh, three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And when I brought this to uh, as an update, I guess, to the community that I had, I wanted to invite the dialogue of the fears that they had. Where was the base? Where was the foundation? Where was the ground zero of where any of these fears originated from? And I myself went into this research prior to getting it, and I could not find one. And you yeah, can say that sure. the information was scraped and removed. Mm -hmm. But the response ultimately from many people was, profound disappointment yeah. they beyond the words and what they had i guess expressed here was their frame of perception of who i was was something that conformed to what they believed was the vaccine is if they, they categorized it somewhere in their mind and then when i said that i did something else mm. suddenly this frame of perception did not uh conform to what they felt and then the rest of not just the decision the individual that i am was brought back into question mm -hmm. and what i'm going through right now at the very least is this reorientation of like where i exist in the community of people that right. i'm with because it, it i infringed upon what they perceived me to be and socially this has sent ripples through different areas that i'm very surprised by but yeah. i'm feeling the the effect right now and um, it's, it's these moments where you recognize, because uh, I had a great friend who told me, he said, the, the perception that they have, did they have you and held you in this high regard because you weren't ever truly expressing what your absolute truth was? And now that you made that real, now they're seeing that. And it's not that you were carrying a facade, it's just you had not said this thing. And now yeah. they're seeing that and now you no longer conform. Are you okay with that? And would it have been better to be silent and remain among the social group? I think this is a, a thing that many people go through. But um, I think that this is the moment that so you realize it's better to speak in name of truth and let the audience self-select. And in those moments that you do express that truth, should you do it, you can always reorient on how it was expressed, if it was imposed or if it was just recognition of this is what I embody now. And let the person feel that they're not actually being attacked. They're just seeing a different angle of myself or just they're seeing my truth or whatever that is. And um, does that have to create division between us just because ideologically one thing no longer fits? And that's where I'm at right now. Absolutely. I'm going to try and tie this whole concept together. It's complicated. Yeah. So I may, I may stumble through this, but... I love the example you even led with of a stubbed toe, because I think this can so potently illustrate the idea of a frame. So for one person, if I stub my toe right now, I'm having a pretty fucking good day. I get to talk to my close friend. I get to record this beautiful podcast. And if I stub my toe right now, it will be one minute of suffering, of pain, and that'll be it. To the person who just caught their husband cheating on them and who one of their children is failing school and their car got repoed, a stubbed toe is the end of the world. 
It is the universe itself. And I've been at this point, various points in my life. The universe itself is conspiring against me specifically. So the, the understanding of the frame there is to understand that it can be the same stimulus hitting your toe against something, but the reaction is based off of the broader frame someone's experiencing. And when we tie that together with what you've experienced now, you know, to, to me in my current conception, a proper healthy frame is I know Kave deeply. I know his heart. I know the things he stands for. And I know he generally in his life has taken a careful, critically minded, logical approach. So if you made a big decision, um, you know, the vaccine's a good example, but I'm trying to think of like something even more extreme. Like if you made some huge decision, I think the proper healthy frame for me in receiving that decision from you would be, well, considering what I know of Kabe generally, that he's someone who carefully thinks about things and he doesn't seem unreasonable often. And I don't think he's like ruled by temporary emotions all the time. This should allow my frame to broaden and at least invite in careful questioning of, okay, is what I believe necessarily true? It doesn't mean I need to make the same decision as you, but is what I believe necessarily true? Is there things I may have missed? Now, what's happening with the vaccine specifically that's really interesting is I don't think people are being honest with themselves about the frame that they're actually in. So for a lot of people, I see this so often, and this is no judgment, like, whether someone should take the vaccine or not. I think it's a risk profile based off of what you do for work, based off of who you are, based off of your level of health, based off of your age group. There's a ton of factors that I think someone should weigh personally to make a decision whether they should get it or not. You know, a decision for you may be different from the decision for me or someone else. But right. the frame that I think a lot of people are operating in that they're not being honest with themselves, there's two frames. There's the frame you experienced from the other doctors perhaps that you spoke with at the beginning who like they're just getting it right away yeah and that frame is one of complete trust because that makes them feel like they're on a team and that's team science or team you know helping people if you will mm -hmm. and I see this a lot um, in some circles I run with where you know the idea of like I'm going to wear my mask outside and it's not about even necessarily that they think that that will be like amazingly helpful for them. It's that it makes them feel like they're a good person because they're showing up for their community in this way. Hmm. Simultaneously on the other side, the reaction you got of disappointment, that's the David versus Goliath frame that they're existing in where they have now sourced their self-importance on a basis of being in opposition to something. So even if new data comes out showing like, hey, your old opinion is fucking wrong. It's actually 100% safe. There's nothing to worry about. Their way that they are sourcing their self-esteem is in opposition to the big government, the conspiracy, whatever it is. And yeah. so if they're being honest with themselves, it's not even that they're reacting to your decision, but your decision challenges their frame in which they receive their felt sense of why they exist in the world right now. And that's difficult to let go of. So it's just a quick reaction of, I'm disappointed in you. Right, that's really well said. And I, I didn't see a sidestep anything there. So 
like what I also want to add on to that is um, when people are saying no to the vaccine, if they are, or if they're saying yes, it seems to be that the that categorizes you into either Republican or Democrat. Yeah, exactly. I'm, not, I'm not American, so I don't really know it well. Yeah, yeah. But but if you are if you said no to the vaccine, you are. It it seems to be that they're saying no more to authority, uh, to dictatorships, to government, and it seems to be more of that categorization. Because if I said yes, that means that I am actually able to be manipulated by the government. Right. And what people had said, interestingly, was I didn't do nine years of medical training. I was nine years of manipulated manipulation into how to yeah, think. brainwashed. But one thing that's so important to recognize, especially online, it's incredibly like mindful. I'm not going to say dangerous, but it, there's there's the way that social media is created is when you engage with certain people, you self-select a tunnel for you to remain in. And what ends up happening is where you get information come in, it may be misappropriated confirmation bias that is seeming to be critical thinking. Mm -hmm. But if you have one confirmation biaser among a group of 20 confirmation biasers, mm -hmm. is that called peer review and critical thinking and knowledge acquisition? No, it's not the case whatsoever. You have it's still by by definition 20 people who are ex like exerting confirmation bias but what ends up happening there in these like hive experiences is the suggestibility and your desire to be among the group because it's most safest there is reaffirmed when you have many people believing that one thing to be true and so it's you hear that you acknowledge the information and because it fits the construct of that biasy or that belief system in that moment you subscribe to it too. And now the wall is created. Others have difficulty entering if they have any opposing things. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that truly ever uh, brings someone to reorient confirmation bias is disconfirmation. And disconfirmation is like this, it, it, it has to be almost the, the polar opposite of what the confirmation bias is mm -hmm. for the person to reorient in the center. And it's very difficult to see that again, when the only circle and tunnel that you have, especially through the mediums of how we connect with the world, are catered to you remaining, listening to the sounds of what you have already chosen and been predisposed to. So AI, as great as it is, is very likely going to echo where you are already being, like putting your voice out. Yeah. It's not only that, it's imagine you and I are playing a board game with 10 of our friends and the board game, the way you win the board game is to get the most people to react to the moves you make. Now I say react, not positively, yeah. just react whatsoever. Yeah. So there's yeah. many different strategies that you could employ to garner reactions from people. Well, this is the game that social media is in general is the algorithm is based purely off of reaction. So to me as a content creator, it doesn't matter if you react and say, fuck you, you're an idiot, what's wrong with you? Or if you go, Alex, I love your work, you're my favorite person. It's a reaction, it's a comment on the post. Mm -hmm. So it creates this selection mechanism that the most incendiary things rise to the top. The most controversial things rise to the top. Now, what's been really interesting is since the pandemic forced everyone inside, it forced them to only be interacting online. 
And then there was a divergence as people are beginning to self-select into the groups you're talking about, create confirmation bias, the more extreme ideas rise to the top. So you see this through things like QAnon and you know the fucking capital riots. It's like, these are all people who self-selected into a group for the most extreme idea. <clears throat> and because that was the thing they were in, then it just like rose, 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 and the temperature continues to go up. The, the interesting part has been, then you have the people who, let's say, don't believe coronavirus exists at all. I'll, I'll use an extreme example just to like play out yeah. the concept fully. Those are the only people who are going out and hanging out together in the real world. So now the selection mechanism has even carried over from social media to real life interaction because people are self-selecting into a group of, well, the dissenting opinion, the person who made dissent with my idea about the vaccine or whatever, isn't actually in the conversation anymore. Because even in my friend group where I'm going to see people, the person who would give us the other opinion has self-selected out because they're still staying home. So yeah. it's this twofold thing that has happened in addition to the social media effect where it's also now carried over into real life. And I think people don't, they don't realize they've entered that echo chamber a lot and they just see evidence. And of course, the other elephant in the room here is that I, I have encountered extraordinarily few people who post stuff who know how to even read a scientific study. Like it is something I took on to myself at one point. I went and just like researched, how do you, just a basic question, how do you read a study? How do you know to look through it critically? And most people don't have that tool set. And so they're just reposting, sharing shit that they A, haven't verified. And even if they have verified it, they haven't verified it with a truly critical lens. Like what was the sample size? Oh, that study was on four people. (laughs) Huh. Like, okay, hmm. should we trust it? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that was one of my frustrations through this whole thing. So I think I exhausted myself by being very grateful for having the capacity to understand absolute relative risks and epidemiological data, how it's being presented, where the biases and information presentation and uh, how their analysis was being done not, I'm not by any way a statistician, but I'm very grateful for having had the capacity to navigate that because probably 98%, I keep saying 98% because I did see some valid concerning ones, but the 98% of ones that were be, even being evaluated and peer reviewed by viral, like virologists, immunologists, were their, their, conclusive, their conclusions were not even corroborating what the data said very often, but they're their tagline was almost one to invoke reaction over and over again. And it would see the thing that was shared was if this conformed to what your, your, your baseline is for what you want to say, that this is either safe or it isn't, we have reason to be hesitant or not. And um, by the time this comes out, I don't know if COVID's even a thing anymore, but we, this will be out next week. So (laughs) it'll be a thing. Well, we, this is going to be important, like pieces for reflection on like, again, like where are people's data points are for their references to life, their cool. checkpoints to their references of life. What are they really like? Where are you being mirrored back your capacity for 
understanding the world that you exist in better because if if your dependency for the external world to define whether life is safe or not remains external when it comes to you the time where you need to exercise any form of critical thinking to truly evaluate what your next step forward is and what reflections to do who to be around what 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 actions you can take you may be stuck and then obligated to depend on others and because your circle has all done the same thing too uh outsourcing your 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 conclusions on life i imagine a lot of people having some very soft landings that can be very painful when they become aware of how none of it actually is in in alignment with what their soul is specifically yeah it's i mean there's two things it's first a question i ask myself often how is it working for me yeah and the question for the audience like how is it working for you if you have a certain viewpoint let's not even say which viewpoint it could be either you could be dead in the camp of like everyone has to get vaccinated it must be mandatory and you still need to wear your mask like okay mm-hmm. camp a or camp b the vaccine has a fucking microchip in it and you're being tracked by the government. Like, here's your two camps. How's it working for you? Are you spending 10 hours a day in fear, doom scrolling on Instagram? Because if so, man, that belief system's not fucking working for you. And fear is the absolute, I mean, of all the emotions I think someone could feel that kill rationality and ability to logically analyze something i think fear is probably top of the list yeah there's a reason that governments use fear as propaganda to drive wars and to make things happen it's because it immediately turns a switch off for people of critically thinking so the first question is just like how is it working for you are you living in fear each day or not and then the second question is just what part of you is attached to the conclusion you've made. What do you, what are you sourcing from the conclusion you've made? Are you sourcing self-importance? Are you sourcing an ability to be right? Are you sourcing, are you sourcing a tribe and a sense of community that maybe you previously didn't have? Are you sourcing whatever it is, self-love from this? Like there's a lot of different things that tie into why people buy-in so fully and when you do that critical self-analysis on it and you actually get to look and see like oh like I had this realization at various different points in my life where I'm like oh I get a lot of positive reactions when I post about this kind of thing huh I mean Mm -hmm. like here's the hilarious example I was scrolling through some uh old old modeling photos of mine from back in the day your your beauty by the way thank you thank you I appreciate that um and as I was scrolling through them, I was like, I was remembering, you know, I posted a good amount of that content on my Instagram early on. Um, and those would get a lot of reactions naturally. Mm-hmm. And so I would, if I wasn't thinking about what is my ultimate goal? Like, what am I, Alex Nelson, aiming at with my life? It's really easy to fall into the trap of, well, fuck it. I'll just pour up. This is working. Let me just post more of this in perpetuity because it's a, you know, it's the Instagram fucking model who only posts her butt. Like, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's great. And she's doing that because it's working obviously because it's a desire and there's demand for it, but this happens with opinions too. And this happens with people's beliefs too. 
they don't realize that they're being filtered down, funneled down into a specific position, not based off of rationality, but based off of the fact that the more they doubled down on a specific thing, they subconsciously were recognizing that it was getting more interaction, more reaction, and it was air quotes working. Mm-hmm. And so they go down that path without even intending to. So that's the other like piece of it is just refocusing on your why. Like, what are you aiming at with your life? If it's to fight against some of this stuff, awesome. But most people, that's not what their stated goal is. Like, so what are you aiming at? Yeah, great, great awareness, man. I, I think our human species is like I was in the Mayan ruins uh, three weeks ago and they had a watchtower there. And I had that same day been reading Many Minds Oneself in the morning. And he said, like, the greatest threat to a human has always been another human. And uh, that's Richard Schwartz who wrote that. And uh, it just reminded me that, like, we're, we have a long history of not feeling safe with others. So this opposition is very deeply biologically wired. And it's always scanning to see, like, can I survive this moment, this experience? And when we end up ultimately interacting with the world, when we have people that are infringing or opposing our ideologies, rather than reorienting a way for us to be in, like, coexistence again, there's this likelihood of, oh, there's more energy expenditure that's required to do that because I have to do something with this dynamic being because I'm dynamic as well. And because there is so much energy there in clash and maybe I don't have the tools for it, I just self-select. I separate and they separate and we're safer here. But if we come together, we may infringe and we may even hurt each other. This may happen in relationships with certain ideologies, but you still stay in each other's presence. But what this tendency and opportunity I think is, is for us to like, reclaim this recognition that we want to have life more available to us and the greater availability to life includes everyone being more and more members that you feel safe to walk among and their ideologies not being infringements upon you but just another part of the ideologies that exist within them and as a marker for yourself i I keep checking in on myself my ethos like looking at eric godsey's pyramid again i took it like just honestly just looked at the ethos portion like what's my ethos for right now it's to remain curiously adaptable Mm -hmm. and i do that because in the moments where i'm feeling greater rigidity or strain or constraint i check in on that ethos and i'm like am i feeling curious right now or creative or whatever that may be if the answer is no look at what's standing in between there what's the barrier preventing me from experiencing that and the adaptability portion is what I feel is the thing that allows us to remember that as the adaptable creatures that we are, we can reclaim everything, including forgiveness for the person that we hate the most. Mm-hmm. Hate is something that exists in your dialogue. I don't really have hate. I, I don't know that feeling of hate, actually. I, I don't connect with it in any way in any portion of my life. I have these fractions of it, but maybe through my adaptability, I can touch what that is. But either way, reclaiming curious adaptability in all forms of life to make life adaptable i mean to have more of life available allows me to have more people come in and i feel like this system that we have that almost incentivizes finding your tribe Mm. finding your tribe is beautiful because it's people that can lift you up Mm. but hopefully we don't put the blinders that creates a wall that forgets the other 
uh, 7.8 billion minus 150 for the best community for you to for you to survive and thrive. And if we can embody that, where my ideologies are not infringements upon you, I will not infringe you. I recognize that some of this may have some negative experiences that you can feel through it, but I will not spill this on you. We can recognize and maybe start reorienting that first threat that Richard Schwartz reorient remi reminds us that like a human being has always been the greatest threat to another. Mm. Can it not be the case progressively more and more? And can we start by being the first, first the embodiment of that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, to me, the strongest person or the most bulletproof person is the person that their ability to love someone else in front of them is 0% impacted by what the person in front of them believes. Yeah. And that's the thing I try to focus on for myself is how can I broaden my ability to love the people in front of me, not filter it down so that I love less people or I love them less, but how can I broaden it? And in that comes in that inclusivity and it, it's the us versus them narrative is as old as humans are conscious. And so mm -hmm. it's one of the most deeply woven pieces of our psychology and our biology. And we live in a society that has become hyper-complicated. There's so much going on that any one person could, it's not possible that you could know everything. And so in that comes a lot of that unknown. Mm -hmm. And in that unknown, what people are doing, I do all the time, we want things to be black and white. And that's us seeking safety. It's our ego seeking safety that we know for a fact what's going on. Mm -hmm. And when I know for a fact what's going on, then I feel safe. Because even if it's a bad thing, like this is the thing maybe people don't realize, this can be about bad shit too. Like if someone stays with an abusive partner and everyone asks around them, why are you staying with that partner? They're abusing you all the time to their ego and psychology, it's a quantified thing. They know it, it's known. Okay, this person treats me like shit, but that creates this emotion and I'm familiar with it. So I'll keep repeating the cycle because I'm familiar with it. It has right. safety in that way. Mm -hmm. So it can be for positive or negative things, but we really wanna categorize things into this like quantified known thing in a, in a society that's just more abstract and complicated than ever that urge carries over onto all things and yeah. it really closes people's minds down because they want to just arrive at a conclusion and then, all right, I've made the fucking decision. So that's why I love the top of your ethos is like curiously, did you say adaptable? Curiously yeah. adaptable. Like yeah. that is the frame. The yeah. frame is I am the person who is always willing to change my mind if new information is presented. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think like, I think we spoke about this earlier where it's like, even my absolute truth that I've been carrying for the past 30 to 40 years is adaptable. <laughs> and I think we, like, we have this perception and it's probably rightfully so that when we're in aging, we have these conditions or constructs that put such deep forks in the ground that they're so difficult to be adaptable. And you'll have these 50, 60 year olds, I'm maybe thinking of my parents who they're very rigid on it and they will say, you know what, I, I, I'm too old to change any of this. But then life humbles them with the obligation for them to do it. And then suddenly it, it, they were able to adapt. What, what stood in the way that 
they prevented them from this thing that just happened as a result of the experience or circumstance that they now found themselves in. And I'm always laughing about this, like the recognition that what you just said as well, which is the familiarity, there seems to be some type of some quotient or some energy associated with that within us that always weighs pain for like that pain pendulum. And to lose the known is where we find pain. And I think I I put a post about this a while ago that I I mean, we spoke about where it's like no human being fears losing, like they don't fear, we don't fear the unknown. We fear losing the known. And the loss of the known is what carries the greatest weight because who here is concerned about dihydrogen monoxide, right? That's water, by the way. But when you hear the word, does it bring a charge? Uh Now you know water. It's a safe word. I know that. And now I feel safe. Or are you fearful of quantum mechanics and its association with osmosis? Nothing. You don't know that. But the fear that instills itself is when you lose familiarity. You have a higher likelihood of that. And um, curiously, like when we're always scanning for this, we may have talked about this before again, but like, when you travel or when anyone travels and they get off a plane and maybe it's a city that's very much like their own, but it's a new city. They get off the plane. They're like, Oh my God, there's so many more people. The, the weather's different. Their senses are ultimately amazing. This is amazing. Like that, but nothing is very, really different from their other city, but mm-hmm. it's because it's a new environment and our biology says, am I safe here or not? Mm-hmm. And so the senses are heightened until it ultimately desensitizes itself. And there's this, normalization through familiarity that says i am safe here as i'm going through this thing but then when you walk into a cafe and you look like you're scanning through a lot of people may think they're just scanning like looking into the room almost like uh, unconsciously seeing if there's a table or not and then going to order their drink but also what's happening in that scan is like am i safe here if you see someone at that table with a gun you're going to immediately have a reaction that says whoa this environment is not safe and you get out quick and what hijacks so much of our scanning and then has us catching back up is this, the rectangle. Mm-hmm. So often when we're in any form of processing of any information, familiarity with this environment, and we feel any unease, this place we've developed such a familiarity with being able to escape from the feeling that a lot of us are catching back up on processes, hours days, months, if not years after when the initial insult or circumstantial experience happened that we initially needed to process. And I think that's why a lot of people are getting downloads now because we've been hijacked with so much new consistent information Mm -hmm. that the recency bias hijacks any of the possibility for us to process all of the things that we came in contact with, but we haven't had the moment to process, am I familiar with this thing? And what does it mean to me? And am I safe? Absolutely. Yeah. And he's holding up his phone for those that are just listening. So that's the rectangle. Um, the, yeah, the thing that stands out to me is there is a, we've gifted everyone, mostly everyone with the ultimate firefighter from an internal family systems perspective. And your phone is the ultimate firefighter because you can seek out any emotion you want on it you can seek out pleasure you can go look at porn you can seek out anger you can find something that pisses you off you can seek out fucking cute kittens and feel an immediate like dopamine rush like they're all different emotions available on to you in this little box and the you know what i think is really important that i'd like to dig a little bit deeper into that you're just saying is like that processing lag time the fact that 
thing happens, we refuse or choose subconsciously or consciously to look away. And so there it sits waiting for us to process it. Um, I'm in the middle of writing an article right now about one of my favorite metaphors for, you know, the psyche and consciousness as a whole is a hot air balloon. And if you are sitting in the hot air balloon, the hot air balloon itself is the entirety of, let's say your consciousness, you sitting in the air balloon are the observer of the consciousness. And most people are trying to fly their hot air balloon and they're pouring so much fuel into the burner. They are just dumping fuel into that. And like the thing's barely fucking flying and they don't understand like, how come I can't make this goddamn hot air balloon fly? I want to go up there and I'm down here, like right next to the ground. And it isn't yeah. until they step outside of the air balloon and look and see that the ballasts, the sandbags all around the fucking basket, there's thousands of them. Mm-hmm. And these thousands of sandbags are the unreleased or unprocessed things that have happened to us throughout our life that we've avoided through things like technology. Mm-hmm. So when we get this feeling, this felt sense that we're having to put in, and I, you know, I've recently been in this, this is why the, the metaphor has been so present for me. Some people may relate to this where they have that feeling that they're putting in so much effort. I'm pushing so fucking hard right now. And it's like barely working. (laughs) Things are barely coming together. Well, there are things which are weighing you down Mm -hmm. that are causing you to need to put an extraordinary amount of fuel into the burner just to get fucking launch velocity. Mm -hmm. And what's being asked is to process those things and to release them because you don't need to put in that amount of effort. There are huge things that have happened to you various points in your life that are taking up mental bandwidth that are just waiting to be processed. And we have more tools now than ever to avoid looking at those things. So I'd love to hear a little bit from you just about that thought in general and also strategies for processing, strategies for turning towards the things. Yeah, so... Uh, I really resonate with that um, that metaphor that you have. And being the symbolic creatures that we are, you picture yourself on that hot air balloon. I picture myself in Turkey because Instagram has shared so many of these people who are flying in Turkey, the right. hot air balloon at sunrise or sunset. It's the spot. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what you're speaking to, which is very often the case with uh, the unprocessed parts of us, is first myself is gratitude that we are in a biological being that is so dynamic and capable of repressing things when we feel the weight, putting them aside. So suppression, which is like actively putting it aside so I can deal with it later so I can address this thing. But what what ends up happening is like, if we don't take some type of checkpoint, there's a higher likelihood of as new things comes in, this just goes and fills up like a storage tank and the psychic load that is and when i say psychic load it's not like a psychic who reads your mind or whatever it is the load on the psyche the the load that we have on process on things that are requiring your time and diligence to to process through gets heavier and our mental bandwidth i think like if we were to think of it symbolically has to pass through this and say am i going to process this thing now nope not yet Nope, not yet. Got to keep doing this thing. Got the next thing to address. 
uh, oh, uh, feeling overwhelmed, gonna hijack that feeling for a bit. Okay, I feel relieved, I can resolve this thing. Oh, bedtime, next thing, responsibility. And what we recognize over and over again, and we can take into account that if you are having these moments where almost after, at the point of burnout or, or the time where you're feeling exhausted from keeping the act of preventing yourself mm -hmm. from spending time with those, those sandbags, like you had said, we, they almost come at us like, like a storm and say, mm -hmm. I, I need to be addressed right now. And that can be expressed with mental overload mm -hmm. and physiological expression as well too. More likely exhaustion, but also anxiety like symptoms or depression and it can express itself in these ways that we all ultimately end up pathologizing our inability to adapt to address the things that were burdening us for a while i'd love to just and, jump in real quick with just sure. a, there's an additional piece of the the metaphor that i think is useful to think about what a lot of people do is they then take the feeling let's say anxiety or let's say anger and they burn that as fuel and I call that shadow fuel. So that shadow fuel, when you're pouring it into the burner of the hot air balloon, yeah, it can work short term. Like, yes, you can get a lot. If you're feeling anxious as shit and you take that anxiety and you put it directly into fucking working harder and you work 20 hours a day and you get everything done, you'll get stuff done. But the thing you're not realizing is that shadow fuel is gunking up the machine. It's got a bunch of additives to it. And so eventually the machinery stops working. So I just wanted to add that in of like, what you're saying is dead yeah. on and people sometimes then co-opt that feeling and they try to harness it towards the Western productivity mindset. Yeah. And a lot of the systems that we have in society are used to reinforce the, the shadow anger as opposed to like getting the tools for adaptation that allow you to address the thing that was burdening you in the burdening you in the first place. But it's not going to be toys or tools for the most part that's going to be allowing you to address that. It's going to be your time, your intention, and your, your conscious awareness of the fact that this exists in the first place. And what that I think allows us to do is recognize that anything that you're experiencing again is adaptable. And what are we trying to do? By processing this, we have more of life become available. Mm -hmm. So what I have found to be very effective is recognizing if you were to track day by day, what are the experiences in your life that you have? Because an experience requires you to be actionable and processing things as you go. And that may be your vocation and how you show up in a relationship and how you go to the gym and all the, the plans that you want to do. But with all of every experience, it requires some form of contemplation. Hmm. And experience can also be contact. If you have a circumstance or an experience or something that you come in contact with, it requires you to process it. So, so coming back to it is if you have the experience, we need to make time, not need to, the opportunity is available for us to make time to contemplate what that experience is, was. And what that will do is like, it'll be organization of some sort for how it fits into our frames of perception. Is this new or is this old? Hmm. Is there adage or is there some subtraction? But ultimately the processing ends, us, ends up having less of a load. And what that does is you go from experience to contemplation. And then ultimately that contemplation makes space for integration. Hmm. And the integration is no longer a, I need to get this checked in. I need to get this addressed. It's, I have addressed this now and I've integrated it. Hmm. And what's naturally available for us as the biological living beings we are is sleep is the most natural integrator that we have. Hmm. 
it allows us to process memory, regain energy. It's, uh, it does this cycling in the mind. If everyone knows the lymphatic system, the glial lymphatic system in the brain only does its filtering when we are in sleep. Mm. And this is often hijacked with a lot of the experiences and responsibilities that we have. Again, the rectangle mm. and any type of media can hijack a lot of the spaces for contemplation and integration. And the issue that comes up because the opportunity is there to integrate and we can make that in spaces of silence. But what ends up happening is if your familiarity only has you experiencing life, experiencing, experiencing, experience, when you are in the moments of contemplation or integration, because they are not places that you feel as familiar or comfortable with, you will ultimately end up filling your spaces with more experience and then the next experience and the next experience. And so little time is dedicated to the opportunity of contemplation and the integration. And we develop a dependency on the experience itself. And then it burdens us to the point that we burn out into silence where then we're obligated to contemplate and sit. And it can be so uncomfortable because we haven't been there for so long. And the hot, hot air balloon is sitting on the ground yep. and now the grass is completely gone yep. and we're almost running out of fuel mm -hmm. and there's no tank for us to refill for a while. And the beautiful thing is when we burn out, provided we allow ourselves to sit there, the contemplative engine starts picking up on its own mm -hmm. and it may be uncomfortable and gross, but it still does it. Mm -hmm. And the integration has the opportunity as well too. And because you are almost burnt out from any new experiences, this system is still so beautifully effective in its way and its method that it ultimately gets to the same point that it is hoping and inviting for you. It believes that you're able to invite yourself into this. And so experiencing, contemplating and integrating, should we do that, minimizes the psychic load of the unaddressed parts of us that are yearning for us and ultimately showing up day by day, just asking for some time to be processed through. Absolutely. Beautifully put. I like to provide a couple of uh, context pieces because I think it's always helpful when someone begins to engage in this process. It's helpful to both give what I would call like the first rungs of the ladder for people who are like deeply struggling. Let's say you are just in poverty. You're listening to this. You're just in poverty. You have no fucking money. You have a wealth of traumas that have existed throughout your life. And you're working three jobs just to keep it together. Now, in that case, the first rung of the ladder may just be identifying the one thing right now that isn't working for you. One thing. So maybe that's just literally what I, what I could work on right now that would make everything better would be to either build the skill or build the mindset that would allow me to turn two of those jobs into one job and it would take up less time and then I would create spaciousness. So I like to provide that as the first rung of the ladder, just because I know sometimes something I've reflected on is we can engage in these concepts in a very high level way of, yeah, so now that you're already at the place where you can go take two weeks in nature, you'll go process, right? Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes it's important to acknowledge that and also acknowledging it's okay as a strategy. And there's actually some uh, psychological literature to back this up. Sometimes if you were to experience like, let's say a sexual assault, like if I experienced a sexual assault yesterday, there's actually a mechanism in the brain that will not allow you to fully process that trauma until some time has passed. 
So as this happens, there are things you can't immediately process mm -hmm. and that's okay. And I also believe it's okay for you to develop strategy. Let's say you're getting a divorce, but also next week is the launch of your new company. So if these two things are happening, it's okay as a strategy to go, okay, I'm committing to myself one month. I'm going to have to grind on this new company. Like that's non-negotiable. It needs to happen. And at the end of that month, I will fully embody and process all of the emotions from the divorce. So it's okay to give yourself a check mark of, I will process that. But what happens for most people is we tell ourselves that story and then we just never process it. We never check back in. Um, and then as a last piece, the understanding is for most of us, this has happened to me a lot. There is so much emotion stuck behind the dam of our coping mechanisms that is waiting to be processed. And sometimes when that dam is blown up, whether that's chosen or not chosen, whether that's complete burnout and you lose your job because you literally can't get out of bed or whether that's choosing to go sit in silence, it can feel like you're being absolutely washed away because that dam blows up and there's all of that water of those emotions that's been building up and building up and building up. And so when you first experience it, I think it's helpful just to know that, that there very likely will be this, oh my God, I am just a wash in my emotions. And I see this with people after ceremonies sometimes. They'll have, I, I prime people for this, but I let them know you may have two weeks where emotionally you are on a fucking roller coaster, where you are crying in the morning and you can't believe you've never felt this good before in the afternoon. And then in the evening you're crying again, you're yelling at people. This may happen, but eventually with time and intention, that flow of water equalizes out to the river that it was always meant to be. And like, yes, yeah, sometimes it rains upstream. Sometimes a fucking new trauma happens and there could be a momentary flood but when we stop the process of coping, of firefighting these things, we allow for the stream to be more natural. And when it's more natural, it means we're in the flow of whatever is present as we go through each day of our life. So to just let people know, like, it's okay to feel that overwhelm at the beginning. And that's what actually turns a lot of people away from this type of work is they do, maybe they sit in their, their third meditation and then that third meditation, they start to feel everything they haven't been feeling and their mind is racing a million miles a minute. And they think that meditation is supposed to be the process of clearing your mind. And they're like, I'm failing at meditation. No, you aren't. That's normal. And it's okay to feel those things. It will be uncomfortable, but just knowing that ahead of time allows you to know like that's a phase that will pass. That's not forever. That will pass. Yeah. Uh, it's like if you're going into meditation, especially if it's your first time, the, the, the mind will think I'm going to meditate to feel calm. Point A is sitting and allowing that space for meditation. But to get to that, there is not a point A to point B where versus when your body is what is obligated and invited to experience through is it goes a point A through to point B. And when it's going through, it goes through the valley of all of the possible expressions that may have been suppressed for a while. And if we think very often that we are, we are these positive affect creatures that want to be the orgasm, but 
don't want to feel any form of anxiety or depression. What is like truly at its core is like what we recognize is we're always trying to cope to validate this thing over and over again. We want to have this baseline of a normality that we can recognize what's familiar to us throughout the day. When your day may be asking you to feel orgasmic or depressed in the same hour, maybe. And if we're talking about life being more available, it's being per permissive to what the moment and circumstance of your life is asking you to feel right now. It doesn't mean to be volatile and completely destabilized to it. It means to be available to what that certain thing is. And when we are, I, I really like this metaphor that you have about the emotions that are behind the dam. That is very potent for us to recognize that when we are coping and we are adapting, it's usually maladaptations that are well-intended that create this dam. And I can give you guys an example really quickly that last week uh, for a seven, 10 days after I brought this awareness of having chosen to go through the vaccine and speak to the objectivity of a lot of the subjective fears, the, the backlash or the, the response that I got, I want to say reaction, not response, mm. was one that burdened me mm. and it shut off a lot of what I, emotions that I wanted to have available. Mm. And I thought I was containing it within myself, but it was also spilling it onto my relationship mm. by not being available to life. And my partner was experiencing that from me. And I had to do a, a, a webinar for them for the same group that had expressed their challenges with, with receiving this. And I, for the last three days prior to that presentation was completely unavailable to like mm -hmm. my present wise. Mm -hmm. And my partner really felt that. And then when I went and did this presentation, there was this incredible, incredible pain of catharsis after where I went and sat down after I had completed this presentation and I felt this wave of anxiety, almost depression, uh, discomfort that I had realized and felt so associated with the moment 10 days before when I had read the words, I'm disappointed. Mm. And that's an understatement. Mm. And that word stuck out in my mind. And I could see that part of me expressing to me that specific thing. And uh, this, this wave, the dam that had been holding up in order for me to continue to what I perceived was me surviving, but not thriving, mm -hmm. was so effective at having me complete my social duties and obligations mm -hmm. that, it, that I was able to inefficiently, because, and I say inefficient because I wasn't present very much to the experience, and I definitely wasn't present to the experiences over the past days. And what does that result in? Probably not choosing the best foods to eat, probably not sleeping well, probably not connecting with my partner the same way that I could have, maybe not even being present to the, deli the deliciousness of the small things in life, like a shower or listening to the body's tuning for going to the bathroom when you need to. Mm -hmm. And all of the signaling goes off, yet our body still is able to compensate in order to temporarily make it through. Mm -hmm. But ultimately like it was this this dam burst as it has so often mm -hmm. for me and it was only in reflection that I was able to see and have my partner mirror to me what this had impacted and um, I mean for having the awareness that I have I was in relative unawareness navigating through this other realm and I had spoken to you about this so and this is these are the burdens that many of us carry throughout life 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I, first of all, thank you for sharing vulnerably. It's important for people to hear a few things come up for me that first our emotions are indicators. That's yeah. what we truly believe at their core. Each emotion we feel is telling you yes, more of this or mm, less of this. Mm-hmm. And when we honor them as such, anxiety is probably telling you something. Anger might be telling you something. Maybe it's a boundary was transgressed or an agreement was broken. So reframing our, our emotions as these indicators allows us to then steer the ship in the way that the compass is pointing and to actually know where we're going. And to go back to the metaphor of the, the dam, and I love, you know, people get sick of metaphors, maybe I certainly don't, but metaphors, the reason that they're so important is because to communicate a relatively high level concept in a way that will stick in someone's psyche so that the next time someone is going through a difficulty, next time maybe you're going through a difficulty, you go, in what way am I putting another brick in the dam right now instead of you know, opening the pressure release and allowing water to come through? Um, but the piece I'll add to the metaphor is there's an entire valley down below the dam and that's your friends, family, your job, your life. And that whole valley is nurtured and watered by that steady flow of water. And when you have all the water contained behind the dam, there's no way for there not to be a sympathetic reaction in that valley below. And so this, you know, how people may relate to their lives. Maybe it's, you've been holding something back for years and years and years and years. And then when you finally open the floodgate of what you really fucking think, you fucking bitch, I can't believe you. All of a sudden, all of the fertile land is washed away in that sudden moment Mm -hmm. of like extreme release because you finally blew up the dam and the optimal goal is not to do that. The optimal goal is to have the valley of your beautiful relationships and your beautiful friendships and your beautiful life to be gently nurtured by the things you feel and allow that emotion to water that whole valley so it can become truly fertile and it can become the life you're looking to live fully felt. And as the last piece, when we, when we meditate, my goal now is never to feel calm. My goal is to feel, mm-hmm. just feel. That's the only goal I go into meditation with. I want to feel whatever it is. And sometimes that's like bliss, like the best I've ever felt. Um, Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's sadness. And when I am willing to feel through those, almost always they pass very quickly which is what's shocking to me. Like it's the little hack that everyone should know about. When you actually feel the thing you need to feel fully, it goes away so quickly because just like an indicator, that internal part of you suddenly feels acknowledged and seen. So it can stop screaming at the top of its lungs. Hey, look out, look out. Ah. Yeah. Mind is wired to have thoughts, not hold thoughts. And the body is meant to have feelings, not hold feelings. Mm. And um, in the same light that a thought can pass through, a feeling when it's finally permitted to be felt through can be transient, but completely unlock you to more availability of life again. And very often, if there's, which seems to be the case over and over again, these parts of us that are just yearning to be seen, heard, acknowledged, and understood, one of their most potent anchors for them to acknowledge that you were able to be present with them is when you're able to feel their expression. And that felt expression is a signature that they have 
that as an expression of them in a moment in time. And that felt experience, I believe, is transient as a result of that. At least that's what my my mind takes me to feel. But I realized over the past year that I used to say a lot more, I think we should X. Now I, I recognize myself saying, I feel we should X. And um, catching, like recognizing that this is a journey of reclamation because the majority of my life has been logically rationalized through, especially after I had my tumor, but because the body wasn't safe, but the felt thought through experience is a one that like interconnects and rejoins the intertwined nature that we have of like this psycho cardiac, psycho mental, psycho felt experience of life that is available to us for a very short time. All of us are meeting the same end. This podcast may be the only thing that survives us. And just uh, as an interesting thing, like when you said metaphor, I think me- when I think very often with meta, I think of how it exp- it's very expansive, mm-hmm. but you're talking about how it's very grounding to, to bring us to like symbolic understanding of things. So if we maybe change it from metaphor to a meta floor, we're back on the ground and we can see all of the the, the intricacies of these things that's being invited to us because we have so many symbolic points of reference that brings organizations and if we are if we are grounded to receive that in that moment the meta floor mm-hmm. is available to everyone to see how how they're interacting and experiencing themselves in relation to their life yeah it's a beautiful concept and it's really the uh it's interesting some an etymology nerd and the four P-H-O-R means carrying or bearing. So mm-hmm. in that sense, even what you're saying about it being the floor, like it is the load bearing structure of your psyche. And if you think about how your life, and this is the reason stories are so impactful for people. This is the reason why someone can watch a certain movie and just be overtaken by emotion or inspiration or frustration or wanting to change the world. It's, it's meta in the sense that it's everything. It's the big picture. And it's four or floor in that it is the thing on which all other things are resting. And so these stories, these things that we process through in these ways that we look at ourselves in the world are really, they are the world. They are the world that you experience. And the question I often ask myself is, what story am I telling myself right now? And is it the story I want to tell myself? Is it a story that serves me in a positive way? Or is it a story that serves little me in an egotistical way? Does right. this serve, ooh, you know, I asked someone a question the other day and you know, usually when I ask a question, it's because I've asked myself the question and we're talking about loneliness and they're like, well, you know, I just, I feel like I've done so much in my life to like avoid loneliness. And I was like, what part of you is addicted to or aiming at being lonely? Like what part of you feel, cause I, I looked at their actions and I was like, you know, just based off your actions, you're actually doing a lot of things that would further create loneliness. And I've done this myself. And the realization I was coming to was like, I've told myself in the story about loneliness that it's this sort of sexy, I'm on my own because only I understand, no one gets me, wanting to close myself off to any potential new pains that I might experience. People do this a lot in relationships. They have a bad relationship. They go, 
I'm sworn off of relationships, I'm done. Yeah. So just acknowledging that the stories we tell ourselves have a real manifestation into reality and then analyzing and go, okay, what is this story really serving? Like if you dig a little deeper, it's easy to tell yourself, look, I'm avoiding loneliness, but okay, what parts of me are actually aiming at loneliness? How is that a sexy story for me? Why, why do I find myself here frequently? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you don't have to go so far to, we don't have to go so deep and to, to recognize that we can tap into the metaphor of life. We can just ask like ourselves when we're having a strawberry, we can just say this, the thing I'm having a strawberry or it's, I'm having a strawberry. And then like immerse yourself in all of the experience of recognizing the sensations that are coming through it, what it means, the juiciness beyond the words, the texture of it, the coolness in contrast to the temperature. And uh, we, we reframe this expansive experience that comes back to make this so much more whole than just I'm having a strawberry. But as a, as a point of reference for familiarity, the words that we have are very often the anchor that defines the experience that we're having in this moment. And if we say, I'm having a strawberry, our mind says, okay, we're safe in this moment as we have this strawberry and it's safe on the words that we've declared. You may not even have had to say that. It could just have been inside your mind that you said that thing, but you open yourself up to being so much more curious about this strawberry as you expand into it. And that, that type of muscle, I think, benefits us so much more in recognizing how we uh, can step away from rigidities that we have in constructs of the mind. Because also what the loneliness is being uh, perpetuated or like it's, it's like being re-emulated. Curiously, I think about, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of the lone wolf. Mm -hmm. Lone wolf doesn't want to have anyone mirrored to define who this mm -hmm. person is. And in my independence, I don't want any mirrors. I don't want any human or life-based feedback for me because it can be too painful for me to receive exactly. any of that. And so I carry myself in this way, but it ultimately creates this rigidity of you not being available to all of what is available to you, which includes the social component mm -hmm. or the immersion into immersion into this, the strawberry and I, I think like this, the simplicity of like that strawberry metaphor, mm -hmm. like allows you to immerse yourself so much more and even differentiating. Like if I were to ask you, what does a strawberry taste like? Mm -hmm. Or what's your experience of the strawberry? Like you wouldn't be able to put the words the same way right. that I do. And uh, that's, that's the beauty of this uniqueness that we have in life. It's always like in reference to this thing and my ability to understand it beyond the words too. What's my sensorial experience that's wrapping this whole thing in? After every uh, mushroom ceremony I hold, I bring out a platter of fruit. Oh yeah, I remember that. And the reaction every single time is people, wow, oh my God, what? <laughs> is this wa watermelon? <gasps> oh. What, there's pineapple oh my god wow and you know to your point the reason that there's that deeply present aware reaction is because they actually just had in the psychedelic ceremony whatever it is they just had a complete not complete but you know partial death of story and yeah. a, a release of a release of needing to know what they think about certain things yeah. And so in that very malleable state directly afterwards, the reason I bring fruit out is like, 
it's their first time potentially in their life or potentially since they were a child really truly experiencing that fruit deeply and it's such a like mind bender because you just realize like oh this is not actually about the psychedelic this is about me being truly present for the experience of this fruit right now. And when you see the amount, I mean, look, give a five-year-old a piece of watermelon and watch the way they eat it. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, watermelon, fuck yes. This is the best thing to ever happen to me <laughs> in my life. And that's available to all of us at all times. So that I love that that idea of just like the strawberry and like how you're eating it and what your experience of it is. Cause it's, it's that and it's for everything. Mm-hmm. And it's all the way we wrap in stories you know, eating is such a potent one for people. Well, I just need to eat right now really quick because I got to go to work and I got to make sure I jam this food in because my body needs sustenance. And it's like, okay, yes. And what if you were present with the food you ate as you did that? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it sounds like coming back to what we were talking about, experience, contemplate, integrate is the medicines that uh, seem the medicinal invitation that psilocybin mushrooms for example are seeming to provide more and more is they obligate the confrontation with the narrative and through that contemplation as heavy as it may be you're feeling what it may be but in in a truncated but incredibly effective time you alleviate the psychic load that's associated with it and then it ultimately ends up making you more available to the experience of life itself and what was available for that fruit to be consumed with the flavor to be indulged in allows like the spaces available for that. And if we incentive were to incentivize contemplation and integration, however you find that into your life daily, it makes you more available. And I'm saying this to myself as well, too, because there's hypocrisy and intermittently not practicing what I do because life has that. But it ultimately ends up, end up making us more available to the experience of life itself mm. and available to the experience of contemplation itself. Cause then contemplation becomes an experience that you're available to. Mm. And I don't think integration is an experience as of yet. I feel like it's more of a passive auto, uh, automatism mm. that we have naturally ingrained within us. Cause the integration component uh, is like this other side of the psyche that I don't think we have available with the science, but we can accelerate it with certain medicines like, psilocybin who just accelerate the natural processes that are already happening within us and most of the societal demands that we have hijack or infringe upon a lot of the processes that are biologically and innately so incredibly effective as a foundational baseline yeah it's i have so many thought i could talk about this for 10 hours um <laughs> the the gift of the psychedelic experience is that many people get a chance because look here's the problem when we analyze our stories when you look at your own story right now you are analyzing it through the lens most people are analyzing it through the lens i certainly do often almost all the time really you're analyzing it through the lens of i want to even if my old story was wrong i want to now weave a narrative in which i'm still right (laughs) like i'm still correct and your ego becomes wrapped up in the story. The gift of the psychedelic experience is the chance to analyze your story about whatever it may be with at least less ego, ideally no ego, but certainly less ego. And you can get a real critical 
objective, more objective view on it. Now, we'll talk in a second about the ways that people co-opt that still and kind of go off track. But a personal example, I was in an open relationship for five years. And the story I was living at that point was like, I want an open relationship because something I value really highly is just freedom and new experience and the beauty of like each person could be this new unique experience of love in front of me, which I still believe to be true, but now I'm in a monogamous relationship. And I had the realization through a psilocybin journey that the story around me being in a polyamorous relationship, an open relationship, I had created because there is a deep fear in me of betrayal. And so masterfully, like I'm in, I'm applauding my own ego with this. I'm like, that was a fucking masterstroke ego. Well done. <laughs> it created a circumstance because it was never about like, if someone would, you know, if the woman I was seeing would fuck someone else, because that is what it is. Like, is it such a foreign thought that she could enjoy another man just like I may enjoy another woman? No, it's not that foreign of a thought. The wounding was that it would be a betrayal. And so masterfully, my ego created this circumstance in which I couldn't be betrayed. It was literally impossible. Like mm -hmm. there was nothing that could be done that was outside the purview of what my story that I had created would do to keep me feeling safe. Mm -hmm. So when I entered into a monogamous relationship, all of that immediately came up. And I'm like, oh my God, I am in deep fear and I'm being shitty and insecure and needy. And all of this, I'm like, where was this? And I was like, oh, I had lived this story that while it had elements of truth, its main function was to keep me safe from exactly what I'm feeling right now, exactly yeah. these emotions. And it's just the way that I was able to then objectively see it from outside and go, oh, now that I'm not attached to that old story anymore, now that I'm not an evangelist for open relationship, I can see the way in which I chose that to cope and the way in which I chose that to, to diminish pain or to diminish the chance for pain. And it's not to say open relationships don't work. I'm sure there are people for whom they will and can, um, but it's that check-in and that's the gift of psychedelics often is that ability to look at yourself and really go, if I wasn't attached to the idea of my ideas being true or right, what would be true here? Mm -hmm. And when you get that chance, you get a chance to really move your life forward leaps and bounds because it's our attachment to our old stories that causes us to stay stuck in the mud. Mm -hmm. And creates an entire system around it because I imagine in that experience of the open relationship curiosity, I'm sure you like, well, then I'm sure. Did you feel that you were looking for podcasts that revalidated it? People in your surroundings that had the similar ideologies that maybe they didn't explore their why, but they sure as heck had this as their output as a way to adapt. Yeah. Is that, is that what you noticed? And almost ironically, like it was yes. And like I started open relationship before I had even really like heard about open relationship. And so strangely, I made the decision really based purely off of my story. And then later, like a year in, sought the confirming evidence. Mm -hmm. And then did what you're saying, which is created an ecosystem of beliefs in which 
the thing I was thinking and feeling was supported. And look, like, it's not to say there's no pain in an open relationship. There's plenty, <laughs> but the primary pain that I was avoiding, the primary thing was betrayal, like that I could be betrayed. And I, I think that's one of the core woundings is betrayal that people can, that we could be betrayed and what that would say about us, what that would say about our belief with the person we were with. So that, that was a really core one for me. And it was funny to see how I <laughs> tricked myself. Oh. So it's interesting that you're bringing this up because I think an important thing for, especially when we have men among men discussing is how we show up in relations mm. and uh, betrayal, abandonment, uh, replaceability. Um, and then these roles that men seem to show up are like are primed by society to show up as and has been reinforced through generations and parental upbringing and religion really has this burden of, uh, these constructs that set us up for this. And then if uh, a partner who comes in, who is very often the greatest, most potent uh, form of human feedback or mirroring mm -hmm. for where your greatest sensitivities, fragilities, insecurities, or fears lie, or places that you are really loving as well too, is now right in front of you. And betrayal may show up not just through physical replaceability, but it could be through the words as well too. And there's this, inf like this very regular, not this very regular, there's this dance that you allow to yourself to have, should you be present to a partner who allows you first to recognize within yourself what that fear is, like it seems to be the case. But is that partner the same one that is as much a mirror, but also one that can hold the space while you take the responsibility to navigate your journey of betrayal and how all of its expressions show up. Right. The reason I say that is because when we recognize that, oh, now this wound is back open, this person may end up being not the source of your wounding, but the person that's bringing you back to the mirror of what already existed before. Mm -hmm. And it's not for them to hold this, but we drop this dependence when once this person brings us to that mirror and it ultimately ends up burdening them to be our hero from that and exactly. us to require the victim role within us to be saved by them or vice versa. And this is one of the most intricate dances that I think that can be recognized through core wounding awareness that allows it to be actionable through understanding and depth to not drop that dependency on our partners because it will almost inevitably happen even in the most unconditional relationship. All relationships are conditional. Let's drop the unconditional yeah, love as a non-existing idea thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, the irony of it is in the wounding becoming present, almost, I would say every partner, how can I put this? The, the behaviors that are going to arise from the wounding are going to actually encourage and drive the behavior that you are most scared of from your partner. Mm -hmm. So to take it to an extreme example, if you were just super needy and insecure for two years, let's say with your partner, increasingly, she is probably going to feel not safe with you, not seen, not held in the masculine, not able to like, truly connect with you. And so those emotions will literally drive her to begin to seek that elsewhere. 
And so in that way, the cycle perpetuates itself without the awareness. And like you said, the, the unconditional love, like it's not a thing. We're not Buddha. <laughs> like that's our aim. That's the direction we want to head to, but nobody is there. I have not met a person who is there. And as such to acknowledge that is really impactful because it can make you realize, you know, what I've talked with you about some is like seeking out these other tools that are outside of your relationship. I've had plenty of conversations with you, with other close male friends outside the relationship to talk through what I'm feeling because in doing that, I get a new data point that's outside of the relationship because it in relationship, when I go to my partner and I tell her, Hey, babe, so when you do this thing, it makes me really fucking insecure. And it really, it challenges me a lot. So I don't want you to do it anymore. When I bring that to her, what's her response? <laughs> Always, it's going to be like, even the most level-headed, beautiful, peaceful person, it's gonna be like, don't tell me how to live my life based off of your wounding. <laughs> yeah. And it becomes two combatants. And so having these outside people to speak to, and especially like I found men's circles to be especially potent for this or just close male friends and same thing for women, but you know, for men specifically in this circumstance, being able to share with those men in your life where they can go, Hmm. Okay. It seems like that might be your stuff or, or sometimes, no, that seems like a fair boundary. I can see why you'd be setting that boundary that, I don't think that's fully your wounding. I think that's something that it's reasonable to ask for. It provides this context outside of the relationship that allows you to get a chance to really, to breathe, to process and to process without it needing to be a, what I felt in my life. It's sometimes you share something with your partner and there's like this need for it to be a fully processed, finished thought mm -hmm. because they're going to challenge it, of course, because it's interrelated to them. And so you're not going to get the chance to just wander your way around what you're really feeling often. Sometimes you will, but often you're not, but with a friend, you'll get that chance with a good friend or with a coach or with a, just like close family member, they'll allow you to stumble your way through the dark to arrive at what you really feel without judgment. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's such an important uh, point that you're bringing up here. And, uh, to rec recognize in a relationship and what you have brought forward is a term that I don't know if my girlfriend made up or not, but mm -hmm. ego bruising, which is like when someone, when you're asking your partner of something and they're like, I'm not going to hold you there. You're like, yeah. oh, why not though? But I asked and I asked so nicely, mm -hmm. but like, I, and I know you can do it. And they're like, no, I'm not going to hold you that way. But you're like, but I know you can do it. And it feels good also when you do it and they don't. And that can be mis like that can be interpreted as oh wow they're not going to hold me there and so i close off and then or i might punish them for even can belittling me mm -hmm. to make me consider that they won't hold me like that and they also hurt me but what they could also just be doing is bringing you to a point where your ego is asking to be held and they are bruising that part of you that's asking to be held that way and you can reorient and recognizing that huh what she brought me to is an egoic bruise and there's truth to that. And I can actually reclaim that now too, because I'm asking her of this, or I'm asking him, whoever it may be that you're relationally engaged with. And that's how you reclaim 
the progressive dependence that we unconsciously drop onto the other. And what ends up happening is if you, if there was such a thing as unconditional love, there's this thing that you ultimately can get to uh, get through, which is disinterested love, Mm -hmm. which disinterested love is when the synergy of all of your complexes have all been reclaimed by you. And you're not asking your partner for one single thing. You love them as they are. You love them as you are. You love yourself as you are. And you are one another choosing to be one another for the reflection that you bring in. Mm -hmm. And this is something to maybe come to as ideals because it's probably ingrained within us biologically to have an affinity and have a synergy through a complex in order for us to continue to do this dance for us to find the charge for appropriation as well too. Uh, But I I find that like, if you have a partner that you can navigate through the egoic bruise Mm -hmm. and feel through the hurt, there's this reclamation that doesn't feel like the satiation of a pain going away, mm. but rather a pain being extinguished from its need to be expressed. Right. And when that differentiation happens, it invites greater depth and availability to yourself that makes you more available to explore this partner within you. And if this partner is in their dynamics of recognizing the same responsibilities or dependencies they put on you, taking responsibility for that, there's this beautiful opportunity for this conjoint depth to be coming through in relationship. And now the novelty is not what seek, but it's the depth and the immersion in one another as we explore and understand ourselves, not as a tool to get through, but as an opportunity that's available while you're here. I think that's where the magic of a, a connection can be really beautifully tasted. And I mean, this can sometimes feel like an ideal because like right now I can feel myself in some constraints intermittently with partnership as we all do and a part of your mind says oh this doesn't have to be this way it can be another way right but also it can be just felt through on its own and am i making space for that absolutely and i love i love that concept and just feeling into because all things exist in a spectrum so there are people listening who i need to tell you also don't need to be a martyr. Like not everything in your relationship needs to be a challenge of your growth edge. It may just be the wrong relationship. Like you may be in the wrong relationship, but the only way, and we've talked about this and what I've come to internally is like the only way to find that out is for me to truly claim my own shit and go, these five things are very clearly my wounding that I get the opportunity to work through. And if I'm wholeheartedly committed to working through those things, then I will either arrive at a place where there will be behaviors, which I, like you said, that disinterested or that I don't need anything from my partner. I will get to that place where I am so full of my love and my purpose that there'll be behaviors I'll put up with and ones I won't. And naturally the right relationship will either filter in or filter out. Because if you're truly acting from that place of processed emotion, where you've thought through your stuff and you've thought through what you feel, then you're going to be in a place of clear decision-making. It's not fear of what if I lose them? It's, oh no, they do that thing all the time that crosses a boundary for me. I've done the work to be sure that that is not a boundary based off of fear or old wounding, but that is just a boundary for me and they continually cross it. Okay, cool. We're done here. And Mm -hmm. that's okay too. Um, 
And it, you know, again, to harp on it, like seeking those outside perspectives is so important because it's not that you shouldn't bring your emotions to your partner. You absolutely should. But what I'm coming more and more to the opinion of is you should bring your emotions to your partner when you have some clarity on them. Mm-hmm. It's those confused emotional expressions that are especially wounding for not just you, but for the relationship in general. And getting that clarity of, okay, I'm feeling this because of this. Here's my part to own. I do have a clear ask. Maybe it's this. And then to have that conversation is super, super important because you can't just like, I'm going to go process all my shit over here and never bring it to them. Um, but what I've done in the past a lot is like, I just, I feel something immediately. And immediately as I feel it, I'm like, let me, let me dump this. Yeah. And especially for the men listening, a process I went through very recently was I went from a relationship where I was really not expressing my emotions that often, if at all, like I was pretty closed off emotionally and I knew that was wrong. It wasn't the way I wanted to exist. Then I swung the pendulum. And I'd express every emotion as it became present. And that's not it either. There's a middle ground of, I'm going to discern that this just came up for me. I need to go take a few minutes. I need to go talk to a friend. I need to go journal, meditate, whatever it may be. So I can feel through what I am actually feeling rather than trying to explore it with a person who's interrelated to the feeling. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm- I think there's something there that's important to acknowledge that many men are reorienting to putting words to their felt experience of life. And maybe I'm saying that as a mechanism of defense for myself, because I find myself in a word salad very early on the moment I feel a thing, my partner very appreciatively, but it, it, it does an ego bruise to me. It's like you sometimes come out of the gates with like this confusing expression of a multiple things as if you're thinking out loud and I don't even know what to do with that right but also I feel more confused and challenged and because it's been like this for like eight to ten months is this just how you are and it's like you're not getting the cue that I need to take responsibility for this to get clearer before I start speaking this way and you ultimately the funny thing is is you blame them for your inability to to do this very often because it's so much easier for us to do that than to feel the pain of the responsibility. And so one of the early things that I've started to differentiate is in recognition of when I feel something, I've started asking for a little bit of space. And it's been challenging to do that because if for 10 months I've shown her that I don't take space, suddenly me asking for space is weird. It's not familiar. Is this the coffee I know? But it could ultimately be something. So am I benefiting from this? So I'm almost like regaining where I lost points before. Mm -hmm. And then in the next step is in putting words to the feeling and understanding my processing through, because if I've had to logically rationalize my life through, now I'm putting language of understanding to a feeling. I find myself hitting so many walls where the lexicon of language is not available for the felt experience the same way. And maybe that's what it's supposed to be, but women can just circumnavigate through the points of reference through what the feels bring them to, it may not necessarily be truth, but it's understanding and familiarity for them. And then from there, reorient towards that I can share with the partner. And because I haven't been able to fully claim that I'm not fully is a funny word always, because I don't think anyone gets there ever. But if I'm approximating to a place that makes it very health, much more healthy in its digestibility of expression to my partner and for her to receive it, I haven't got there yet. And so I find very often that 
this presence of being within the presence of other men is able to diffuse the energy or the affective load that's associated with the confusion of the inability to truly define the feeling. And it, in that diffusion, uh, allows me to ultimately express it to the men. Hopefully I've expressed it in a way that it maintains the integrity and authenticity of what I'm looking for from my expression and from my partner, how they could receive it too. Um, and then I'll then be able to express that to them. And I feel like that's, this is such a like burdening process that even expressing it out loud, I'm like, this is so exhausting. Why would anyone want to even do this? But like, yeah. The things to acknowledge here are, so first and foremost, and I've, I've seen this in action sometimes. So the quality of the people you are engaging with to share those emotions is utmost importance. Yeah. Because you need the friend, you know, what I have a gift in, in you and you have a gift in, in me is someone who'll go, no, Kaveh, that's on you. That's yeah. all your shit there. You should spend some time with that. Uh, no I see it way too often where it's the opposite, where it's like, well, yeah, fuck that bitch. Yeah. I can't believe she would do that to you. And that like blind support. So that's caveat number one is like, this only works with the right group of people who are willing to challenge as well as support. Right. Um, and the important concept that I think you landed on is that, you know, most women, I will say, not all, but most women grow up in an environment with other women where they are practicing processing their emotions and speaking what they feel. Most men grow up in an mm -hmm. environment where that is not the case. So yeah. it is not shocking that for those of us who are beginning this process later in life, that we don't have the words of the language immediately, that we don't know exactly what we feel. We just know we feel something. And to mm -hmm. give permission and permissiveness to the men out there who are like, I just, I know I'm feeling something. Your emotion that you're most comfortable with is what all emotions will default to. So if society told you anger is okay, you'll find yourself always angry, even though what you really feel is sad or left out or excluded. So in this process, you are literally gaining that lexicon of the words that you want to be using to explain what you're feeling, to then bring it back to the partner and have the conversation with them. Yeah, that's great awareness. I mean, it makes me think that if you have been experiencing depression for a while, you will be depressed that you have been depressed for a while and exactly. you've just came to the realization versus exactly. if you were angry all the time, you'll be angry at the awareness that you finally have that you've been angry or anxious or sad or whatever it is, you'll default to this yeah. <laughs> or numb to the feeling that you've been numb for so long because it's going to awareness will itself bring you to the thing that you are most familiar with in that respect. And then, but seeing allows us to finally be actionable and one thing that's a caveat I'd love to invite in, especially with men who are, have a higher likelihood of listening to us speaking right now is when we're reconnecting with what's deemed to be the feminine components of us, it's not to uh, dismiss or shame all of your masculine expressions. It's to embody and encompass both and bring progressively more synergy through because ultimately, man, me and you, the men that are involved in this world, women as well too, all need to, in as we're progressively doing this, putting our time and efforts ideally towards reorienting others who are making decisions for the world that are ultimately uh, 
perpetuating this mindset and ideology where narcissism before, like where we pointed out is also the feature that's revered in so many executives and a lot of the most influential people in the world who now they're stuck in the construct of having to be in this masculine output, output, control, silencing thing that is, is so pervasive and ultimately detrimental to the human experience, but the life experience that exists on this world as a whole, the resourcefulness that is finite on this earth, and ultimately the way that the earth allows life to continue to exist gets infringed upon. And as we have more and more decision makers becoming less and less available to life and more rigid to certain traits within the masculine and very limited within the feminine, if they're devoid of that felt experience or we become too in the felt and inactive in, in unable to take action on this, I feel like we're ultimately doing a net disservice to the world where we have this massive opportunity that is, is making us more available to support those that are even in their greatest points of rigidity. Yeah. And um, it's quite a feat to take on, but I feel like this is the time before, like after two wars and before we get too technologically mm. uh, intertwined <laughs> absolutely no it is the i mean it's the task and it, the reason it's the task and it's such a core piece of my mission to work with men specifically is is exactly that you know if the question to each person listening is if you were acting from a place of relatively complete awareness of what you were feeling relatively complete awareness of why you were feeling it do you think you would be acting in a way that was more loving, compassionate, and considerate of those around you or less? And, you know, most people, obviously I'm leading there that more compassionate and we see it and I can identify it even in my own life. When I'm in emotional pain, I get very selfish because it comes about me and the things I'm feeling. And so part of the work and part of the reason that I engage with doing the work on what I'm feeling is because I know it makes me less selfish. I actually become a better person through processing these emotions because when I'm just in pain, when I'm angry, frustrated, sad, excluded, betrayed, I'm only thinking about the pain I'm in. And then I take actions and I've seen this in relationship where I take an action that I thought was good. And my partner's like, yo, what was up with you doing that? That was kind of some bullshit. I can't believe you didn't even ask me if we should do that. And I'm like, oh, oh, fuck. I was literally just trying to extinguish the pain I was feeling through some massive immediate action. So you see that played out on a grander scale in our governments and in people in government who are taking actions to extinguish an internal pain whether that's the internal pain of not feeling like they're good enough, not feeling like they're seen, not feeling like they're the best embodiment of who they can be. And so they do, 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 do. And it's just that reminder to like, first come to that place of presence with what you're feeling and then take the action. And sometimes the action is going to be the same action, but it's a lot different when it's from the place, like you've experienced this, I'm sure. It's a lot different when you share with your woman the thing that you need. So maybe it's like, you know, I'll give an easy example for me. Um, my partner, Maria, she wakes up and she's like a million miles a minute. So she wakes up and she is ready to start working on shit for the day. I personally, I need in the morning, I need to go sit, meditate, read, drink my coffee, and then I'm ready for the day. So at first she would wake up, we'd be like laying in bed next to each other. She wakes up, she goes, 
okay, so what we should do today is, and I'm like, <sighs> like it felt like dying to me. <laughs> so at first I laid the boundaries, like I, you can't talk to me like that when we're in bed. And you'd feel the charge because I hadn't fully thought through why I believed that. I hadn't fully thought through what I felt. And so of course it's received like, whoa, hey, cool it. Like what the hell? That's pretty aggressive the way you phrase that to me. And then when I did the work to process it, it was the same boundary. The boundary is still, hey, when we're in bed, that's not the time for planning. That's not when I wanna be processing what we're gonna do for the day, what we need to do tomorrow. But it came from a place of just deeply rooted processed emotion. And then it was received and immediately adjusted. And it became a beautiful like example for me of, Okay, I did the work to figure out like, hey, what I love in the morning is coming to a place of deep centeredness so I can then take proper right action throughout my day. This infringes upon my ability to get to that centeredness and therefore I don't want it. Mm. And it's like, okay, beautiful. Now with that awareness, then it can be actually received instead of be received as an attack, which it previously was. It's like, fuck you, don't do this. <laughs> So if when about like it's interesting how when we feel a boundary infringed upon, maybe we don't even recognize the boundary, but if the boundary is infringed upon, you just stepped onto my soil and I didn't allow you there. Army comes in to protect. Exactly. Versus when the boundary recognizes that, hey, what is this boundary even for? When someone oversteps and they step onto your property, let's say your land, you're like, hey, when you do this, this is what comes up for me. And this is actually what I need. The army doesn't have to come in. It's more of the like the peacekeeper, the Marshall Rosenberg-esque equivalent who non-violently, non-violently communicates what his or her needs are. Mm-hmm. And now this boundary is honored lovingly. There's no army that comes to jump because the next time she may in her or his or her unconscious process or for a moment of unawareness recognizes that, hey, I'm coming close to this boundary again. They may be so fearful because they were met with an army last time that they don't even say the thing that they're asking for that relates to their needs. Mm-hmm. And now the boundaries of one another has met the armies without ever meeting the peacekeeper exactly. who's able to communicate either of the two. And then both develop some form of resentment for their inability to communicate the, their needs to one another. And, and then it ultimately very often boils up that in one fight, it spills over into all of the other unaddressed things because the protective mechanisms that were required for this not to be resurfaced suddenly are not prioritized in the expression of protection. And then the spillover can be so detrimental that the resentment can really hurt a, a relationship. All boundaries become completely messed up. They become more fences as opposed to lines in the sand. And now people are walking around on eggshells among them with landmines that are present. And now the relationship isn't working and uh, I must go. Is this, did we, did we, did we put our best foot forward or that we have the opportunity when we had the opportunity available to that. And I feel like in very, in relationships that are uh, able to have this open dialogue, even in the most evolved ones that I've seen, this is still a recurrence that happens and that's completely okay and understandable. It's just when one or both parties recognizes this, can they name it and reorient? And that may be six to eight months after the first insult. It's not an insult like insulting or an offense, but it's when it was the the circumstance was made contact with. Absolutely, yeah. 
perhaps as a last thought here, and then we'll look at wrapping up. Um, the all good boundaries are a negotiation. They're conversation. It's not I from my throne telling my subjects, this is the way it will be. If you want to stay in relationship with the person who it is a relationship with, a boundary is a negotiation. The beginning of the conversation is you having clarity on what you feel and laying out what it is you would like. But you have to keep that curious mental malleability to then receive what it is that they're doing because they, they may bring you something that you didn't realize that like, hey, well, I know that that's like a, a three in terms of your need scale, but for me, it's a 10. Like in bed in the morning is where I plan. That is where I get my day set up. That is how I get ready for my day. If I can't do that, that's fucking rough for me and it doesn't work for me. So then allowing yourself to have that ability to see the whole picture and go, okay. So we, do, we have boundaries. They kind of clash a little bit here. How can we negotiate a solution that works for the both of us? Mm -hmm. And just realizing like, if you only set boundaries all the time and it's never a negotiation, it's never a conversation, you're going to have so many boundaries around yourself that no one else is in. You're just going to be completely encompassed by a fortress of walls that you have drawn. And since none of them were negotiations, you will find yourself alone within them. So that process piece is very important and something I'm still practicing learning because it could be really easy to you arrive at that clarity, you feel so good about it. You're like, I know what I need and I know why I need it. And then still there's that inflection point of, here's what you have to do. And it's like, here's what I'm feeling. How do you feel about this boundary? Is there any parts of this that don't work for you or does it totally work for you? If it does, awesome. If there's parts that don't work, let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. I think many women are awaiting their man's ability to be able to have that form of dialogue and communication available to them. And as if many men may not identify with it at all, because it may seem soft, it may not seem solution seeking, it may not seem all of the things that they identify with for how conversations are supposed to be had for needs to be met. But it can be one of the most potent, permissive, relinquishing of some type of output that a man and woman could both be asking of one another that invites them into more cohesion opportunities. And I think where you, where we have love flourish and less resentment, where it might be pervasive, uh, continue to be, starts when we have these arenas of where we reorient and get really clear on where our truth lies in the first place. That getting clear process. I mean, you get If I have a boundary, let's say my boundary is that you don't cheat on me. Let's just give an extreme one. That's my boundary. So in terms of an importance of a boundary, that's a 10. So it's okay. That's a non-negotiable boundary. There is no conversation to be had because that's 10 for me. That's a 10 in importance. Most boundaries though are a four. <laughs> Yeah. When you can acknowledge that and apply that framework to the boundaries you're setting, it's not you like giving up your power or being too feminine by not setting a boundary properly. It's just acknowledging like, how important is this to you? Okay. It's, you know, it's a five. Okay. So 
when I brush up against any other human in the world, if they have a boundary around this too, it's okay for this to be some negotiation here. But it's also okay to have some boundaries that are a 10. And if those boundaries are clear to you, you know the reasons why you have them, then in those occasions, it's okay to have that firmness of, this is the boundary. I'll hear your perspective, but I'm not really going to budge on this. This is the thing. Mm -hmm. But most people, myself almost always included, are not at that level of clarity on their boundary and the real importance of it to them. That reorients to the very start of this whole podcast, interestingly, where, again, Richard Schwartz says that the greatest threat to any human has been another human. But it's probably the case that every person has been a threat to another human because of the lack of the clarity that they had within themselves that made them a threat to themselves. Absolutely. (laughs) So... In, the, in this interesting cycle, our expression is a defense mechanism for our blindness or our inability to see what our needs really were to be met. And I think ultimately what we do end up seeing is we are much more social and cohesive than in friction and uh, imposing of lack of security with one another. And when we reorient through greater clarity, more people are allowed in, more people are welcomed back in, more parts of you are welcomed back in as well too. And I think when people, not I think, I feel (laughs) that this is encompasses what a human being who is harnessing what's available to us through consciousness and awareness allows us to reorient into greater availability, first for yourself, but for others as well, too. And there's more gentleness that exists there. Can already feel the difference when I I recognize that I don't have to burden my mind to figure out all of my life can just be felt through well thank you for being on brother uh where can people find you where's the best place to access you uh com, d-r-k-a-v-o-o-s-i.com or kave kavusi on uh, instagram for now i'll include all that in the show notes for people that want to click in the description you can grab those links um yeah brother thank you for being on i appreciate your spirit i love you And I appreciate uh, getting to share this time together and having deep conversations. It lights me up and the rest of the day, I'm going to be buzzing. Just like, yeah, I love fucking (laughs) shooting back and forth on these concepts and feeling heard and communicated too. So there's our timer. Fire alarm. (laughs) That's our timer. Perfect. All right. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. It certainly was a fun one to record. Me and Kaveh have a lot of resonance on just the way we think about things and the way we approach having perspective on things. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider sharing it out with a friend. Uh, I'd be super, super happy if you did so. It's one of the best ways to support the show, as well as leave a review on iTunes and let us know how you felt and what you think about the podcast in general. Uh, You can also support by going and checking out my new product, which is the Archangel Metatron Altar Kit. This is a product I developed in collaboration with a company called The Journey Back to Soul, run by my beautiful girlfriend. And as we developed this, we really wanted to create something that could allow people to take a very important practice to me, which is sort of having an intentional ceremonial altar in my home and bring it home for themselves in an easy to use, very clear way. So this kit has an altar cloth with Archangel Metatron's cube on it. 
and it also comes with a set of gemstones that correlate specifically to Archangel Metatron, as well as instructions for doing your own ritual at home and some sage as well to clear your space. So if that's something that sounds like your jam, you can check that out at the link in the description of the show, and I'd be super happy if you bought one. Uh, beyond that as well, you can always book me for personal one-on-one coaching if you are looking to really accelerate your life and move yourself from where you are right now into the truth of who you are meant to be. I would be happy and honored to assist you on that journey. So if you're feeling a little stuck right now, or you're feeling like some things are unclear, set up a session. Let's spend a session together and we can start to work through some of those things and really develop that vision of where you are going. So those are the main ways you can support me and my work. That's it for today. I'm excited to be releasing this one and I hope you really, really enjoyed it and look out for a bunch of dope episodes coming up. I've got some killer guests that I'm just beyond excited about. So much love everyone. Have a beautiful day and I will talk to you soon.